you rose, the grave and death are conquered. You rose, the grave and death are conquered. And so here's the main question I'm, I'm actually after, and I think this is going to um, get us to that. Um, Christ has risen, and Christ has risen indeed. And Jesus conquered death. But if Jesus conquered death, why is it that you and I still face the threat of death ourselves? If Jesus conquered death, then why is it that you and I can still die? Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 7. We'll read these and then we'll walk back through these. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he, is, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We pray for us. Father God, That Sunday, so many years ago, it changed all human history. It changed everything for believers in Yahweh, so much so that believers, true believers in Yahweh, no longer gather on Saturday, but gather on Sunday every week. It's the first day to celebrate the fact that Christ Jesus is alive and is King. And so we gather together with a common belief this morning that Jesus Christ rules over all. Father, I pray that you will show us the incredible glory in the empty tomb and what that means for us post-death. I pray for that this morning. I pray that you will exalt Jesus Christ and his humility, his willingness to suffer, and the fact that he has bought pardon for us all and cleansed us. I pray that you will highlight that, Father, by your spirit this morning. Pray that the name of our risen Savior will be exalted in our short time together. We pray these things, Father, to you. We ask them through the name of our older brother who's adopted us or paid for our adoption. And we ask, Father, that your spirit would work in your church. 
by your word. Amen. So again, if Jesus has conquered death, then why do we face death ourselves? So let's walk through this. We're just going to walk through this text. It is a glorious text, um, but Hebrews Hebrews is actually probably one sermon, the whole book, so you can read it. It takes you about 45, 50 minutes um, uh, to read it from start to finish, hence why sermons should be 45 to 50 minutes long. Um, I don't know. That's a good argument, but that sounds cool. Um, so uh, it's one sermon. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. Um, and so we're kind of landing in one section of it. So just keep that in mind. But there in verse two, verse or chapter two, verse seven, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So throughout the first chapter of Hebrews, one of the things that the author has argued is that Jesus is superior to the angels. Well, why is he spending so much time arguing that Jesus is superior to angels? It's necessary because he's trying to show that Jesus instituted a new and a better covenant. And you can recall from the Old Testament, the angels were highly involved in instituting the first covenants. We've seen that as we walk through Genesis and we'll continue to see that as we walk through Exodus. By showing that Jesus is better than the angels, he shows that Jesus commemorates a new and a better covenant. And so here he explains that for a little while, Jesus was actually made lower than the angels as he took on flesh, as he lived among us in our fallen world and as he suffered unto death. But he goes on to tell us that Jesus has now been crowned with glory and with honor and that all things are now subject to Jesus. So for a little while, says this author, of Hebrews for a little while Jesus was made subject to the lowest treatment imaginable even the treatment of the grave but now says the author of Hebrews Jesus has been given a place of glory and honor so much so that all things everything currently is subject to him it's hard to find a better summary of the entire mission of the incarnation than those verses and then he says in the second part of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. As verse 8 continues, it's, it is made clear that not just some things are made subject to Jesus, but all things, everything in the universe. So much so he says nothing is left outside of his control. But surely... As soon as you hear those words, as soon as they hit your ears and you digest them, your response is going to be, really? All things are currently subject to Jesus? Really? If all things are currently subject to Jesus, why are people starving across the globe? Why are people being gunned down in our streets? Why are missiles hitting hospitals and schools in Eastern Europe? Why is the church persecuted and scorned across the world? Why are millions of babies slaughtered in their own mother's wombs? Well, fair enough. He anticipates that. Look at the last part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to it. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is probably one of the most helpful statements in all of Christian theology. If you highlight in your Bible, if you underline in your Bible, highlight and underline that verse. If I had a business making mugs that teaches good doctrine, I think I would have this verse printed on a mug. It would be helpful to see this on a regular, maybe daily basis. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That doesn't mean that everything is not in subjection to him. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So now you're starting to follow the logic of the author, the preacher. And in verse 9, he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here we see the mission of Jesus laid out before us. He, namely Jesus, who is far superior to any created being, even angels, was made lower than the angels for a while for a purpose. Well, what was the purpose? The purpose, it said there, is suffering. Jesus came to suffer. Well, what fueled the mission of Jesus to come suffer? We see that in the phrase, so that by the grace of God, the mission of Jesus was fueled by the grace of God, by the love of God. That's the entire logic of the gospel. The gospel is motivated by the love of God towards his enemies, towards us. So how does God show us his love for us? He sends Jesus to exist for a little while, in a form that is lower than the angels, in order that he may suffer even to the point of death. But this wasn't just so Jesus could suffer. This mission was a mission built on the suffering in the stead of others, in the place of others. How do I get that? Well, follow that phrase. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for Everyone. The phrase for everyone means on behalf of everyone, or others, or those who will believe. And how does the author of Hebrews describe the work of Jesus? That he might taste death for everyone. This is the picture. This taste death for everyone is the picture of a cupbearer. You probably recall that in ancient times there was a position called the cupbearer. And what was the job of the cupbearer? Where the cupbearer tasted the cup before the king would taste the cup uh, to make sure it wasn't poisonous so that the king wouldn't get poisoned. This is probably a position that still exists in certain areas of the world today. So the picture here, just make sure you catch how beautiful this is. The picture here is that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels so that he could become our cupbearer. And there's no doubt that the cup that he drank was poisonous. The cup that he drank 
was labeled death itself. Jesus acts as a cupbearer for everyone who trusts in him. He, drink, he drinks the cup labeled death for everyone of his own. What a picture. The king, you see the reversal, right? The king acts as cupbearer for his subjects. That's the reversal of the Christian gospel. It's supposed to be that one of his subjects acts as cupbearer for the king. That's the whole point of this thing, right? Protect the king. But the Christian gospel says, oh, no, no, no. The king of all kings will come and act as cupbearer for his own. This is the very picture that the Jews could not bear. They couldn't bear the thought of the, of the God of the universe subjecting himself to such humiliation as to become lower than the angels. That's why the author of Hebrews takes so much time arguing he really did become lower than the angels. They couldn't imagine it. But now, to go as far as to say that the king of kings would make himself subject, humiliated, to the point of being the cupbearer for the very creatures he created, creatures who rebelled against him, that's borderline absurd. And it would be absurd unless it were true. But now you can understand why the cross was a stumbling block for the Jews. So Jesus acts as our substitute by tasting death for us. And then our Wrap us back around one more time because I haven't forgotten the question. We're getting there to answering the question. If Jesus conquered death, if he drank it for us, then why do we still face the threat of death ourselves? Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now the author kind of editorializes. He comments on this plan of God that's been laid forth. He explains that it appears to him that this, this is a good plan. It's a fitting plan. The one for whom and by whom all things exist. That's a fitting thing for God, that is, to bring many sons to glory. Meaning it's a good plan of God to adopt for himself children and bring them to reside with God in glory. It's a good plan that this should be done by making Jesus the founder of their salvation. So the term here, founder, it has a meaning of something like captain. So he's calling Jesus the captain of our salvation or the trailblazer of our salvation. So it's a good plan. Catch this plan. It's a good plan of God to adopt children for himself and bring them, them to live with him in glory by making Jesus the captain to go before them in their salvation. But he goes further and tells us that Jesus is not just the captain of our salvation. He actually even says this. He says, Jesus is made perfect or complete through suffering. Oh, and how right he is. The cross and the grave did not make Jesus any more perfect in terms of his sinlessness. Surely not. But they made him all the more complete as a sufficient, willing, merciful Savior. We celebrate that every single time we take the supper. We celebrate it because we celebrate 
a broken bread, that is an able body, a perfect sinless sacrifice, that's the bread. But then we go further. We don't just have bread, do we? We also have what? A cup. And the cup is that this perfect, willing, able body, this perfect sacrifice, this able sacrifice is also a willing sacrifice. We drink the cup to show that he's willing to shed his blood. And now we're told how, verse 11. Very key. For he who sanctifies, if the word sanctifies scares you, fair, we don't use it that often. Let's use this, cleans. For he who cleans and those who are sanctified, for he who cleans and those who are clean, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. For Jesus who cleans us and those who are clean by Jesus, we now share in the same substance, the very righteousness of God. This should be blasphemous if it wasn't true. And as such, this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus saves us by cleansing us and remaking us into the substance of the righteousness of God. And as such, he makes us to be approved to be part of the family of God. You're clean and now you can be part. In most adoptions where there's an older sibling involved, it is usually counseled to be very careful to make sure that the older sibling doesn't feel slighted. Do you catch what's happening in the gospel? The story of the gospel is all built on slighting the older brother. Not just slightly slighting him, but completely slighting him. All things are made possible in the gospel because of the older brother. Our adoption happens at the very cost of his life. It is the suffering of Jesus, our other older brother, that enables us to be adopted. And so this feels to the author of Hebrews like he's saying blasphemy. He's putting forward that the God of the universe has come down lower than the angels, that he's actually put himself under such subjection as to be killed. And he's going further to say he's actually cleaned us so that we can actually share in the righteousness of God. And he feels the need to say, I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. So what is he going to do? If you were writing in the very first century to a bunch of Jews and you're trying to say, I'm telling you all, I'm not making this up. What would you do? You would go back to the Old Testament, right? And you would say, I'm telling you, you can see this across the Old Testament. Well, what do you think he does? He does exactly that. He quotes in verse 12 and in verse 13, he quotes three texts from the Old Testament. The first one comes out of Psalm 22, which you may remember last week. I know it feels forever ago, but just last week, Brother Mark preached from Psalm 22. You remember how that psalm began? That psalm began with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how that psalm begins, right? That's not what he's quoting here. Instead, he, he is quoting here that somebody is talking about their brothers in singing their praise in the midst of the congregation. Now, wait a second. How does that logic work? You start at the beginning of the chapter saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the very end, you talk about the fact that you are going 
to have your name sung among the brethren? Well, now, how, how does that happen? If you're forsaken to the point of death, how is there a moment coming later when you're going to stand among your brethren and have your name praised? Unless in the middle, there's an event called resurrection. Already in Psalm 22, that's the point of the author of Hebrews. It's already laid out. It had to happen. He had to be fully forsaken at the top and he had to have his name praised by the brethren in the bottom. Then after quoting Psalm 22 in verse 12, he quotes two different. So remember, Psalm 22 would have been written a thousand years before Jesus. Now you go 300 years forward and you get the book of Isaiah, which is 700 years before Jesus. And then he quotes two verses from Isaiah 8, verse 13. I again, I will put my trust in him. That's Isaiah 8, 17. And again, this is Isaiah 8, 18. Behold, I and the children of, that God has given me. Here's what's going on. So these children, the ones who are the brothers referenced in verse 12, are such because of their trust in the older brother. That's the trust part. So how do you get into this? You trust in the older brother. So Jesus secures adopted brothers by cleaning them and showing that they're cleansing or they show that they are clean by trusting and following Jesus. Now, here's what I love. You can actually see this lived out in this story of Jesus in the, in the Gospels. Do you remember there's a point early on, Matthew 12 records this. Remember some, this guy comes after Jesus has been teaching for a while and he says, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. And what does Jesus say? He points to his followers and he says, um, these are my mother and my brothers because my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. But wait, he says that, but he doesn't live that out. He never calls his followers brothers throughout his entire ministry until after he's resurrected. In Matthew 28, the day of his resurrection, he says to the women when he greets them, he doesn't say, go and tell the followers. This is what he says, Matthew 28, verse 10. Do not be afraid. Go and tell for, my, for the first time in his entire ministry. Go and tell who? My brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Here's the logic. The disciples are his brothers, but he cannot call him brothers until he undergoes the ministry of suffering and of cleaning them, of sanctifying them. At that point, he accomplishes what's necessary for them to now be called brothers. So the entire mission of Jesus was to come and secure the right of the followers to be considered his brothers, and he worked that out by accomplishing their righteousness on the cross and buying their pardon as he rose from the grave. Now they are his brothers. Now we're getting there. We're getting all the components we need to answer that question. If he conquered death, then why do we still face death? Verse 14. Since therefore, he's just walking us right through. The children, now you got how it's now we're brethren, we're children. This is family talk, right? 
share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus took on flesh. He entered this world of suffering, this world of death, in order that he might destroy the one who introduced death, that is the devil. The problem of death was introduced when? It was introduced in the third chapter of Genesis. It was introduced when the devil tempted Eve. And since that moment, Satan, who entices and encourages sin, has been using death as the first step to hold man to account for sin. That's what death is. It's the first step to hold us to account for the very thing Satan has tempted us to do. But Jesus' victory over the grave is the first step in overcoming sin and death. In the death of Jesus, the devil bruised the heel of Jesus. But in the resurrection of Jesus, the bruised heel of Jesus stands ready and willing to ultimately crush the head of the devil. And through the death of Jesus, verse 15 tells us, Jesus delivered those who have been enslaved to the fear of death. So how can Jesus have delivered us from death if we can still die? I think it might best be understood by understanding the event of death as an arrest. As for what I want to submit for you to think on is that death is being arrested. If I told you right now that you're about to be arrested, would you be afraid? I'm sure you would be. You might want to say no, but you would be. The extent of your fear, it's going to heavily depend on one of, or a few factors. At least one of those has to do with who's arresting you and what justice system will you be delivered to. So if I were to tell either one of you, any of you right now, that you were going to be arrested by the North Koreans, I'm going to think that's not going to bring warm fuzzies to you. Why? Because you don't doubt or because you doubt the actual justice of their justice system. Right. It's not a good system. And therefore, there's a lot to be afraid of if you're arrested by them. But another factor that would determine whether you would be in fear of impending arrest would be the level of your guilt of a crime. If you knew that you'd committed a crime and that there's ample evidence to prove that you committed a crime, then you would likely be a lot more afraid of being arrested. Well, let's walk through that. When it comes to death, none of us needs to be fearful at all of facing an unjust system of justice. There's nothing to be afraid of there. Why? Because God himself is the judge and he's a perfect judge. He'll always do right. So we have nothing to fear concerning the system of justice that we're going to fear, uh, face after the arrest of death. But what about the other factor? Do we have reason to fear in terms of our guilt and the corresponding evidence of our guilt? Massively so. We have major reasons to fear arrest, both because we are guilty and the evidence of our guilt before an all-knowing God is conclusive. There exists exhaustively conclusive evidence of our guilt of disobeying God on a regular basis. So yes, 
We have much to fear of that arrest. So here's how this lays out. Death was introduced by God when sin entered the picture. It was the moment of complete arrest. All humanity who's currently living and breathing, all humanity are wanted criminals before a holy judge. All of us are on the loose until the moment of our arrest, until the moment of our arrest warrant is issued. And we should all be as fearful as wanted criminal running around with an APB out for our arrest. The moment of arrest is not what scares a criminal. It is the pending punishment that scares him. And so all of humanity lives in lifelong slavery of fear of arrest, fear of death. And that's what this passage is all about. It is explaining that the perfect God of the universe took on human flesh, entered this world of wanted criminals. And unlike all the guilty criminals around him, he never did one thing wrong as he perfectly upheld the law. But God allowed an arrest warrant to be issued for him nonetheless. And Satan was happy, happy as he could be to throw the handcuffs on Jesus and participate in his death. But you know, the real shock came. A cosmic shock came when Jesus stood before the perfect judge, the God of the universe. And this perfect judge declared Jesus the sinless son of God as guilty and poured out upon him the full weight of punishment that Jesus never deserved. Shock of shocks. Can you imagine the glee from Satan and his minions as they saw Jesus treated like a guilty sinner? But everything changed when all of a sudden the jail cell began to rumble and the stone was rolled away from the tomb. As Jesus walked out of the tomb, he walked out of jail and he didn't leave empty-handed. You know what he picked up on his way out? He left with pardon papers for his brothers and for his sisters. That's what this passage is saying. It is saying that Jesus left the tomb and he came to his brothers and sisters and he's saying this to you this morning. Have no fear. They can and they will arrest you. But I hold in my possession a pardon certificate signed by the judge of the universe with your name on it. Moreover, I have a room for you. I've prepared it in our father's house. I've made your bed and I've folded your clothes. So when they come to arrest you, there's no reason to fear. It's just a ticket home. Brothers and sisters, the empty tomb purchased all of this for us. If there's no empty tomb, then Jesus' work on the cross just wasn't enough. If there's no empty tomb, there's no pardon certificates with our names on it. If there's no empty tomb, we have no share in the family of God. If there's no empty tomb, we're still in our sins. But praise be to God, there is an empty tomb. 
I close by expressing my concern for how dismissive our contemporary culture is about death. It seems to me, seems to me that our culture is trying to radically limit the attention given to death. I don't think the trend away from funeral services and burials bodes well for Christians at all. One of the most helpful things that can happen in a community of criminals is for the police to come with sirens blazing and arrest one of the criminals. What does that do? Well, for all the rest of criminals, it stirs you to realize, you know what? At any moment, I could be next. The more dismissive we are of death, the more we downplay the drama of arrest. Can I suggest that it might be wise if Christians were to upplay the drama of arrest? I think it would be wise for every Christian to have a funeral service. And the basic message, have a funeral service at your death. And the basic message is something like this. I think it should just be standard. Here lies brother believer. His lifeless body lays his evidence before us that he deserved to be arrested. Let there be no doubt that brother believer deserved to be arrested. But we stand here as his church family. And we want to tell you that brother believer has been fully pardoned due to the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus has already paid for brother believer's crimes. And you can rest assured, brother believer is now with Jesus. But brother believer made us promise something. He made us promise that we would warn each of you that the day of your arrest is going to come quicker than any of you can imagine. He asked that we not downplay his misdeeds, but emphasize that a full pardon awaits all of those who put their trust in Jesus. So I close and say, brothers and sisters, don't live afraid of arrest. Jesus walked out of the tomb. Sure, none of us looks forward to being arrested. But the day of arrest for believers, it'll be the last day you'll ever face temptation. It'll be the last day you'll ever feel the guilt of sin. It'll be the last day of ever feeling sickness or pain, betrayal, sadness, or fear. It will be the first day of the rest of your life, part of the family of God. Christ has risen indeed. We pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for Hebrews. Thank you for this text. Thank you that it tells us of the full logic of the gospel. Father, we recognize as fallen creatures that every one of us deserves death for sure. But that's only the beginning. That's just the rest. What we really deserve is to pay for our crimes for eternity. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ already paid for them. They'll never be paid for again. And thank you that there's an empty tomb and that our king walked out with pardon papers. Father, thank you that none of us 
will ever pay for our crimes. You have secured it all in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to believe. Entice us to trust and follow. And Father, show us, prove in our hearts again that that tomb was empty and that our King lives. We ask these things to you, Father, through the strong name of our King Jesus, that your Spirit work in the hearts of your children. Amen.